The New Testament indicates that each and every believer is a minister of God's grace through Christ. The Apostle Peter writes that those who've been born into God's family through faith have actually become a part of what he calls a holy priesthood. And that kind of throws our minds back into the Old Testament days of the role of a priest. A priest who served God first and then served others as God's representative. So all those who believe the good news that Christ died for them have been saved from their sins and they are now bearers of this good news. Now today what I want you to see is I want you to see the why. The reasons, the motives here that lie behind this aspect of serving God and serving others. And that's exactly what Paul's addressing in the passage we're going to look at in the letter of 2 Corinthians today. I want to just remind you that this whole book here is set in the context of, uh, you know, people that are continuing to criticize Paul. And once again, he's having to defend his apostleship. The people who, who, who criticize him, they seek to discredit him. They're, they're trying to sabotage his authority within the church. Because, you see, they declared he wasn't a true apostle. And one of the reasons why he wasn't a true apostle is that he didn't take money from the church. He didn't demand payment for what he was doing. Another reason why they had a problem is that he didn't come with all these letters of recommendation from other churches. Uh, they accused him of having base motives. They even thought that, that he was fickle. You know, he made decision to do one thing and then he changed his mind and did another. And so Paul, again, defends himself. This time by revealing his motives for ministry. And these three motivations we're going to look at that were Paul's motivations for ministry are exactly the same three that apply to you and me as we contemplate the service, the ministry, whatever it might be that God calls us to. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you grab a Bible in front of you there, it's page 1228. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the first thing that I want you to see by way of Paul's motivation is the fear of the Lord. And I'm actually going to drop back and begin reading at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, so whether we are at home or away, he's talking about living here or dying and going to be with Christ, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known is, is but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Now, Paul knew that his future was secure in the Lord. And therefore, he says, it is my ambition then in all things to do what is pleasing to the Lord. And I will walk by faith and not by sight. He says a second ambition he had was to persuade others. 
This is at the very heart of his calling to ministry, beginning from his experience with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul adds that he was motivated to serve God because of the fear of the Lord. This is an amazing thing. He was mindful that one day he would stand before Christ and he would give an account of the life that he'd lived in Christ. Now, a couple of things that are real important for us about this verse. First of all, it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not Paul was saved. This isn't a judgment regarding salvation. The promise of God is that when we trust in Christ, we will never come into judgment for our sins. They are judged at the cross. They're forever dealt with at that point. The issue of salvation has been settled forever at that very moment. But it is a judgment for our works. It's a judgment of whether they are good or evil. Now, the word evil conjures up what really the word isn't intended here. The Greek word that's used here means trivial, worthless. In other words, all of our works are going to be judged as whether they are good or good for nothing. That is, of little or no value eternally, spiritually. All the things that we've done here as Christians. And while Paul doesn't fear God in the sense of being fearful of God's punishment or his condemnation, he was in awe of thinking of standing before God and giving an account of how he lived his life after God had saved him. So I think there's a healthy fear that we should think of when we think of standing before a holy and a perfect judge. Oh, let's not fear for salvation. It doesn't have anything to do with that. And therefore, let's not trivialize this one before whom we have to give an account of the things that we have done in our lives. And Paul says that knowing that one day he'll have to face this awesome God, he wants to show that he has been faithful as God's servant in the ministry that God had called him to. That ministry, he says, was to persuade others. The fact that God has extended his grace and his mercy to Paul was never far from his mind, I don't think. It motivated him to be faithful in service and to be the bearer of the good news that he'd come to believe and that he wanted others to know as well. And so he instructs these believers in Corinth that they too will stand before God to give an account. Scott Haifman, in his commentary on this New Testament book, writes, We must remember that Paul's reminder of God's coming judgment was not an attempt to scare people into heaven, though the fear of God granted by the Spirit may, in fact, bring about a person's repentance. Rather, it was given for those inside the church as a means of spurring them on in their life of faith. A little later in the same section, Haifman adds this perspective which should motivate and yes, it should encourage you. He writes this, only the fear of God leads to not having to fear God. Think about that for a moment. That's an amazingly profound truth. Only the fear of God leads to not having to fear God. We do not fear God judging us for our sins. When we come to faith in Christ, that is dealt with. Never, the scriptures say, will we come into judgment for our sins. But we will stand before him. He will judge our lives. And that knowledge should motivate us on how we live our lives. Should motivate us to live rightly, to live in a way that pleases him. 
to live by faith, not by sight. It motivates us to be faithful in the service and ministry, whatever shape or form that might be that God calls each one of us to. It's all these good works we've talked about before that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's his first motivation. It's the fear of the Lord. The second one is the love of Christ. This should be our motivation too. Let's go back to the text. Pick up at verse 14. Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's amazing that fear and love can be spoken of in the same conversation about the motives of ministry, but it's true. On the one hand, there is a holy fear. There's a reverential awe that we should have that compels us to live rightly, that compels us to to serve God and to serve others faithfully. We'll have to give an answer for our lives. But on the other hand, we are motivated to serve because of Christ's love for us. And this love was supremely demonstrated on the cross. This is where the love of God and the justice of God intersected and where God could deal with the problems that we have. Gresham Machen was a noted theologian and educator in the early 20th century. And he explains it this way. Christ died for all, therefore all died is so because Christ was the representative of all when he died. The death that he died on the cross was in itself the death of all. Since Christ was the representative of all, therefore all may have been said to have died there on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem when Christ died. Now this is all the impact, this is all the the consequences of being united with Christ. We are united with him, we are in Christ. That phrase, pay attention to that when you read through the New Testament, particularly in the epistles, in Christ, in Christ. Paul talks in some detail about this back in the book of Romans, chapter 6, and it really is worth our time to consider. So if you would just turn back a couple of books to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. Paul's talking in chapter 5 about our justification, where God declares us to be righteous, in the right. When we believe in him, he declares that we are in the right. And so then he anticipates questions, and he comes to the end of the chapters, and he anticipates uh, a question. So this is where we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? See, he's just said, where there is sin, there's more grace. So he just anticipates this question. But he says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see how this fits with the demonstration that we had this morning of Ella getting baptized. That's a picture 
of what it is to die with Christ, going under the water, being buried with Christ, and being raised to new life. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 6. And then he goes on in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We were raised with Christ. It's what we call positional truth. Okay? Things that are true of you. Whether you feel them or not, you know them or not, God declares that they're true. And so we're identified with the work that Jesus did here on the cross. And that's the basis of Paul's statement that in Christ you are a new creation. Now let's just take that verse apart just a minute because there are several key things for it. One is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this speaks of your position in Christ. Again, it has all to do with being united with Christ and identified in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. Philip Hughes speaks of its meaning when he writes this, the expression in Christ sums up as briefly and as profoundly as possible the inexhaustible significance of man's redemption. It speaks of security in him who has himself borne in his own body the judgment of God against our sin. It speaks of acceptance in him with whom alone God is well pleased. It speaks of assurance for the future in him who as the only begotten son is the sole heir of God. It speaks of participation in the divine nature in him who is the everlasting word. It speaks of knowing the truth and being free in that truth in him who himself is the truth. All this and very much more than can ever be expressed in human language is meant by being in Christ. You are in Christ. It's one of the most profound things that can be said about you if you put your trust in Christ. You are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, you have become a new creation. And we are identified as being in Christ when God saves us and he forgives us. And because of our new relationship with God then, we've become this new creation. Paul states further that by being a new creation, the old things have passed away, everything has become new. Now, I don't think he's talking about our old self. He's not talking about that old nature, the identification of being in Adam. It's not that old capacity which has a natural bent to sin and to self-centeredness. That's not done away with. That's there. In fact, it's getting worse. It's getting corrupted. But what God does is he takes a new nature, a new nature that's empowered and, and, and run by the Holy Spirit, and he places that within us. So now for the first time, we have the possibility, the potential of living an obedient life, of living a life that pleases God. It's in that way that all things have become new. 
I think another implication mentioned by Paul is, is that it changes the way we look at others, the way we see others. We put a different lens on, if you will, so that we see others as God sees them. We see them as people for whom Christ died. And it changes the way we relate to other people. It changes the way that we respond to other people. It changes the way we minister to people according to their need, whether it is as someone who is a recipient of God's saving grace or someone in need of God's saving grace. The fear of the Lord motivated Paul. The love of Christ motivated Paul. And one other thing that he explains, and that's the commission of Christ. Go back to the text again. I want to pick up at verse 18. Paul writes, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this commission is to minister with a view to people being reconciled to God. The Bible makes very clear, very plain, that because of sin, men and women are enemies of God. Sounds harsh, doesn't it? But see, maybe we're not realizing how bad sin really is. And how it is to this holy, perfect, righteous God. The truth is that our sin has caused a separation between God and ourselves. And if God is to be true to his righteous character, his holy character, he must judge sin. And with that judgment comes rightful condemnation. But here's the big thing. Through the cross, God makes a way. And God steps in to do something that you and I could not do for ourselves. He bears our sins, and he's the one that then takes our punishment for us. You know, it's interesting, the Bible never speaks of God being reconciled to us. He doesn't have to be reconciled to us. He doesn't have a problem. The fault is all ours. It's our sin we need to be reconciled to God, and that's what God does in Christ. In, in Christ, God removes the grounds of the alienation that separates us from him. And so instead of conflict, reconciliation brings peace. Peace. Got to go back to Romans again. I know some of you said I should have kept my finger there. Romans. Romans chapter 5. I want you to see how Paul develops this. It's such a profound a logical argument and explanation. He's going to talk about what happens when we put our trust in Christ and God declares us not guilty. Remember, justification is the legal act of God. It's, it's forensic language. It's legal language. It's the legal act of God where he declares us not guilty. He declares us in the right. So look at Romans 5, starting with verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a little word in there that is so significant, and it's the little word with. The Greek word of the Greek New Testament is pros, P-R-O-S. It means with or means facing. In other words, because God has declared us to be in the right, we have peace 
facing God. We will never face God in a state of war, in enmity. Uh, we will always face him with a state of peace declared because of what he's done. Through whom, Paul says, through whom also we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now I want you to drop down to verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation is something that God does for us. And it's accomplished through a very significant act. It's called imputation. Big word, it's simply an accounting term. It means to put over to one's account, to put into one's charge. And this is what God has done in Christ because of his perfect sacrifice for sin. That's what verse 21 in 2 Corinthians 5 is all about. Because it says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's the diagram. I want you to think of it. All of our sins over here on our side of the ledger sheet, when we come to faith in Christ, all those sins are moved over and charged to Jesus. That's what he died for. And when we do that, God takes his righteousness and he transfers that over. He imputes that over into your account. What an amazing, that's a good deal, isn't it? Jesus gets my sins, and I get his righteousness. What that means is that when God looks at you and me, he sees us in Christ, and he sees us as being absolutely righteous. Now, we're still living our life out, right? We still sin. We still have to deal with sin. That's important. But God reconciles you and me to himself because Jesus became sin on our behalf. He does what we could not do ourselves. And the demand for God's holiness is met in Christ. So when you trust in Christ, when you believe the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for you, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, God removes the grounds of alienation and he reconciles you to himself and he declares that a state of peace now exists. You know, we have a human illustration of that in the New Testament. It's really kind of an interesting one. Paul, the apostle, wrote a letter to a fellow by the name of Philemon. Uh, and the letter's in there later on in your New Testament. But Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus stole from him and then ran away. Somehow he ends up in Rome where Paul is under house arrest. And somehow they encounter each other and Paul leads him to faith in Christ. Onesimus becomes a believer in Jesus. Paul writes a letter while he's in Rome that's sent back to Colossae, to the Christians in, uh, that we now have the New Testament letter of Colossians. And he sends another letter with Onesimus. So Onesimus takes those two letters, one to the church, the other one to Philemon, who was his owner, his master from whom he ran. 
And in the letter, Paul encouraged and exhorted Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And then he adds this. Look at what he writes. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. This is what God has done for you. He charged your sins to Jesus' account. And he took all those sins himself. They were imputed over to him. And in return, God credits to our account his righteousness. What an amazing thing. And then having been reconciled to God, he gives us a commission that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ. On this earth, God wants to do his work through you and through me in touching other people's lives. God gives us a commission to be his representatives, sharing the good news. And here's the good news. The judge has become the Savior. And this is the message that we have to give to others. There's no amount of effort that you can do. There's no amount of good that you can try. There's no amount of, of, uh, of anything, any effort that can bring you into the relationship with God. God does that through Christ. He reconciles you to himself. He makes you go from being an enemy to being a friend. And then he gives us a commission. So, what's the bottom line? What do you walk away with today? Let me suggest a couple of things. I'm going to summarize it in this way. If you haven't trusted in Christ to forgive your sins uh, by believing that he died for you, that he was buried, that he was raised, all according to the scriptures, then the message for you is to carefully consider what's at stake. To refuse to bow to Christ is to be separated from God forever and all that is good. It's to fall under the judgment of a holy God who must condemn sinners. And there's no hope for you apart from Christ. And if you continue to reject that free gift of salvation, God lets you choose your way. The opening words of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 are for you. Paul writes, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And it's a simple act of opening up your heart to God and saying, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. And I invite you to come into my life to forgive my sins and to reconcile me to you. You see, it's believing that Christ's death is sufficient and the only way to salvation. If you haven't made that decision, would you make it today? Just in the quietness of your heart, just open it up. Ask God to come and be a part of your life. Now, if you've done that already, if you've placed your trust in Christ, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here for the most part, then the message for you, I'm going to suggest is threefold. First of all, because you will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you'll give an account for your life, commit yourself to walking by faith, not by sight. Um, seek to please God in everything that you do. Second, live like the new creation that you are in Christ. Live in light of the fact that you are a new creation. Live in light of what God has already done for you. Because you've been saved, because you've been reconciled, live like it. Thirdly, joyfully purposefully enter into the ministry that God has for you. Whatever shape or form that it might be, 
just enter into that work of ministry, whether it's a kind word or sharing the good news, telling somebody in your li- uh, that's in your orbit about how you've trusted in Christ, what that means, offering them the same thing. Here's the amazing thing, folks. You will never know the full impact that you might have on the life of somebody else. Let me ask a question. What person, think of anybody that's lived, famous people that lived in the 19th century, in the 1800s, who had the greatest influence for good? Who made the greatest impact on and on from their life? You know, there'd be good candidates. Abraham Lincoln, be a good one. The inventor, Thomas Edison, think of all the good that he's brought. Uh, Marie Curie, first woman to ever win the Nobel Prize. Uh, Mark Twain, Florence Nightingale, the founder of modern nursing. Um, People like Charles Dickens, uh, Louis Pasteur, uh, Frederick Douglass, all kinds of people can come to mind when you think about that. Just notable people who left a mark in the world. My suggestion would be Ed Kimball. Ed Kimball. He would be my, he'd get my vote. Ed Kimball was a shy, nervous Sunday school teacher in Chicago. And he had a group of boys, young men that were in his class, and he made a commitment in his own mind before the Lord that he was going to share Christ personally with each one of those guys. There was actually a very overweight, unattractive shoe salesman in his class that, that frankly, Kimball preferred wasn't there. He, he, he kind of created some problems there, and was a little disruptive. But he decided to be faithful to the responsibility that he felt that he had as a Sunday school teacher. And so on Saturday morning, April 21, 1855, Edward Kimball went down to the store where this young man worked. In fact, he was debating all the way down whether he should do it or not. He actually walked by the store and realized he'd gone too far. And he said, I'm going to do this once and for all. I'm going to have it over with. He turned around, went back in the store, found the young man in the back stacking shoes, And he sat down and he talked with him and he talked to him about Jesus. And right there in that store, that young man gave his heart to Christ. His name was Dwight L. Moody. Moody later became a very famous evangelist traveling throughout the United States and Europe. In Europe, he personally led to Christ, the father of C.T. Studd. And seeing his father's life change, C.T. Studd came to Christ. He spent his entire life the rest of his life in pioneer missionary work in India, China, and Africa. Started the whole movement in recent times there. Moody was instrumental in leading Louis Evans Sr.'s father to Christ, who influenced his son, Louis Evans Sr., to come to faith in Christ. Evans Sr. became the pastor of Hollywood Presbyterian Church. The church grew, it flourished. There was a young businessman from Oklahoma who moved to California to make his fortune uh, in, in the candy business, confectionery candies. And he used to go horseback riding on Sunday after Sundays out on the Hollywood Hills. But his friends in Hollywood had always said, sometime you've got to hear this guy by the name of Evans preach. But he didn't, he didn't have time to do that. One day this successful businessman finished riding early. And as he was heading back for home, he found himself going by Hollywood Presbyterian Church. So he just, out of curiosity, stopped, parked. He sat in the back row and listened. And that's where Bill Bright heard the gospel and later came to faith. 
Bill Bright would leave the business world and would found a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. Through their staff, millions of people around the world have been introduced to Christ and influence. Another person who came to Christ through the chain of command here through down through Edward Kimball was Mordecai Ham. Ham became an evangelist. And uh, during one of his revivals, he led a young athlete to Christ by the name of Billy Graham. You know the impact that he's had on the world. Probably nobody has spoken to more people in person anywhere in the world in any time in history other than Billy Graham. The impact and influence just continues on. At one of Billy Graham's crusades, a man responded to the invitation to receive Christ. And, and he made his way from the back of the auditorium all the way to the front to give his heart to Christ. His name was Tom Phillips. Phillips was an executive with the Raytheon Corporation. When one of President Richard Nixon's aides was caught up in the Watergate scandal, this man turned to one of his friends for counsel. Uh, his friend was Tom Phillips. The man was Chuck Colson. Tom Phillips gave Chuck Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis, and that was the start of his journey to come to faith. Colson started Prison Fellowship Ministry, which has had an incredible impact in prisons all over the world. Bill Bright, Billy Graham, Chuck Colson, countless others whom God has used to make an impact in our world even today. Who would have ever imagined that one faithful act by a, a nervous, scared, very ordinary person, Ed Kimball, would still affect the world today. More, almost two centuries later. Incredible. Incredible. Here's the truth. You never know the true impact of your life. When you're available for God to use in other people's lives and introducing them to the one to whom somebody introduced you to, you never know. I ran across a saying long ago, and, and I've always used it, and I don't even know who, who originated it. I'd love to take credit. I can't do that. Um, somebody by the name of Anonymous, maybe. He, he writes a lot of things. Um, but here's what it says. Anyone can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. You do not know the impact of your life when you're available for God to use you to speak a kind word, to do a kind thing, to share your story with somebody else, to tell somebody else how they can know the Savior, deal with their sins, know that they'll be with God forever in heaven. You're never going to know the impact. And maybe that's good because God just calls us to be faithful. Success has nothing to do with it. In God's economy, it's being faithful. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that Paul wrote these words so that we could understand why he ministered, why he was faithful to do what you'd called him to do. Lord, may we be the same. Would you work in our hearts such that the love of Christ would so control us that being mindful that we'll one day give an account for our lives to you, not for salvation, but for reward or lack of reward. And Lord, might we be motivated then to be your ambassadors through our character, through our countenance, through our conduct, through our witness. Lord, might we be indeed salt and light to a world that so desperately needs to know how they can get rid of their sins, how they can be forgiven and have a clean slate before you. 
Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit lives in us and can empower us to do that in a very kind and gentle way as we share what you've done in our lives. We're so grateful for what you've done. And may we be mindful this week that we are ambassadors for you, whether we like it or not, whether we do a good job or not, but we are your representatives. And encourage us, Lord, to walk by faith, not by sight. In Christ's name I pray, amen.